Hello, and welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to Producers and Compliance with your host, Sam Garrow. Today's panelists are Jack Chasky and Dan Marr. John Jack Chasky, Senior Regulatory Affairs Consultant, joined Westmont with over 30 years of experience as a supervising examiner for the New York Department of Financial Services. He served New York in the investigations section of the Consumer Services Bureau, where he analyzed, trended, and reviewed the market conduct of agents, brokers, and adjusters for all lines of insurance, and he investigated applicants for those licenses and newly appointed insurance company officers and directors. While at the NYDFS, he participated in many National Association of Insurance Commissioners initiatives, including chair of the Producer Licensing Working Group, the Complaint Handling Working Group, and is a board advisor for the National Insurance Producer Registry. Mr. Chasky currently holds the designations of Chartered Property and Casualty Underwriter and Certified Insurance Examiner. He received his BBA in Accounting from Siena College in Albany, New York. Dan Marr is the Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer of the Excess Line Association of New York, Eleni. The association is a statutorily created industry advisory association responsible for facilitating and encouraging compliance with New York's excess line law. Mr. Marr is also an attorney licensed to practice in the states of New Jersey and New York and a number of federal courts. Prior to joining Eleni in 1997, he was senior vice president and general counsel with Lancer Insurance Company for 15 years. Mr. Marr is a registered lobbyist in New York State and has influenced a number of changes to the New York State insurance law. Additionally, Mr. Marr holds the professional insurance designation Association in Surplus Lines Insurance and is a frequent speaker on current issues affecting the property and casualty insurance industry. This presentation is only intended to provide a general educational overview. The information in this podcast is not intended, nor should it be construed, to provide specific legal or regulatory guidance. The content of this presentation and any related discussion represent the views and perspectives of the speakers and do not in any way constitute official interpretations or opinions of Westmont Associates or the Excess Line Association of New York. Legal or regulatory counsel should always be consulted to review specific questions or issues of regulatory compliance. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this podcast. Um, and I want to thank Dan and Jack, our panelists, uh, for being our panelists today. Our first panelist will be Jack Chasky, and he will be discussing the basics of producer licensing and the regulatory issues involved. So I'll turn it over to you, Jack. Uh, thank you. I want to thank all the participants for uh, for being uh, in this podcast. And uh, I'll, I'll ask the participants a quick question. Would you be wrong to want to get into the insurance business with a motivation to make lots of money? And I'll answer it for you. Absolutely not. And I encourage you to join the insurance profession and make lots of money providing appropriate protections for your clients. This will help them avoid catastrophic consequences from loss. However, before you get too enthusiastic, uh, because like driving your car, there are rules to the road and police to enforce those rules, you have to spend a little bit of time learning the requirements. And we'll spend a, a, about the next 30 minutes or so between Dan and myself talking about some of these requirements, some of these practices. And I'll, 
I'll say that some will be legal requirements. Others are more ethical or professional in nature. But what we want you to consider is that these are best practices of providing insurance to your clients. Uh, historically, insurance sort of developed its own chapter in state laws. Those laws are enacted in state legislatures and administered by insurance departments located in the executive branches of the government. Um, insurance has been deemed a special interest because it's highly technical in nature and the fact that there's this future promise to pay claims that is being paid for by the public in the present. Insurance departments have received expansive powers for the legislature in order to regulate in a way that allows the insurance industry to fulfill its promises. Insurance in the U.S. has been regulated uh, by a state insurance department since just before the Civil War in around 1850. And the states have been the primary regulator, not the federal government. At that time, the insurance industry uh, had started to shift a little bit from cooperative insurance companies and direct writers to the use of, of agents. Uh, who sold and delivered policies for the insurer. It took about 20 years from that time in, in uh, New York City for the innovation of brokers to appear. They operated shopping for insurers and placing applications through the agents or direct to the insurers. But that innovation was formed under somewhat of a, a little bit of a sinister cloud with certain owners of insurance companies setting up their friends to make a buck at the expense of the consumer, as well as spawning other rascalities, which you will see in a moment still persists 150 years later. There were many complaints of gross overpayments, rebates, missing money, no policies issued, claims not paid, and insurers going bankrupt. So each state legislature began to create a regulatory structure based on what issues in their markets they were trying to solve. With recognition of the need to license agents and brokers, as well as requiring companies to register their agents. This registry is referred to as an appointment. So in summary, an agent represents an insurance company and a broker represents the customer who's applying for insurance. So, so what is this term producer? Um, the producer is sort of a newly defined term in early 2000, which was part of the financial services modernization ushered in by the U.S. Congress in the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act of 1999. Under the guidance provided, states work to provide for uniformity and licensing by developing and subsequently passing the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, known as the NAIC, developed Producer Licensing Model Act, also known as the PLMA. The NAIC is a voluntary association of insurance commissioners in each state that collectively try to share information and develop model acts for consistency in regulating a national and now global industry that is regulated still in each state. A model act has no force in effect until such time as it's actually adopted and passed in a state legislature. The PLMA took about three years to be passed as each state legislature had to enact the PLMA during the next legislative session following adoption by the NAIC. And admittedly, the state-based construct can be cumbersome and costly for the insurance industry when you're trying to operate globally while attempting to comply with, with local laws in each state. Thus, there was this need for modernization. 
So the PLMA established that a producer was anyone who would sell, solicit, and negotiate insurance as those terms were defined in the law and required that each producer needed to be licensed. It established that the producer would be licensed first in his or her home state, which was defined as one's residence or principal place of business. And it would also make that producer eligible for non-resident licenses in all other states by merely submitting an application and paying each state licensing fee. That concept was conditioned on the fact that the producer was in good standing in their home state and that their home state accepted producers in the other states for licensure on the same basis. This is known as the principle of reciprocity. Although not quite like your driver's license that permits you to drive the entire country, uh, as you still had to apply for an insurance producer license in each state, and you don't have to do that for your driver's license. As far as I can tell, and, and Dan may have some thoughts too when he discusses excess lines, this new nomenclature uh, of producer um, did not change the body of law or core precedent that still identifies the distinction between a broker or an agent. So those terms still apply today. What I'd like to do now is just sort of introduce a case study um, that occurred uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, and as I promised, there would be more evidence of rascality out there in the insurance producer segment. So in my investigative experience, one of the clearest reinforcements for the continued distinction between agent and broker came when the the sheriff of Wall Street and attorney general, Elliot Spitzer, prosecuted the five or six largest producers in the country. An additional 20 large producer firms were subject to our insurance department investigation, where it is estimated we reviewed 65 to 70 percent of the commercial lines volume insuring New York risks, along with a good sized sample of personal lines business. So we had just introduced the term producer when the state legislature adopted the PLMA in 2003. And in 2004, the attorney general began filing civil lawsuits against the business entities and seeking criminal convictions against the individual producers. The essence of the case was that producers misrepresented their role in the purchase of insurance. They were acting as agents for the insurer when in fact they held themselves out as a broker or an agent of the insured. They would hold, hold themselves out to be your independent agent, your insurance professional, inferring that they operated in the customer's best interest. The documentation that I had included and turned over to the AG showed a culture of the companies paying contingent compensation based on overall premium volume that incentivized these large producers to steer insurance to a particular company. In just one producer entity, we're talking about $800 million a year in net income. That's actual cash over and above the existing profits. The AG complaint that focused on just the largest producers maintained that in addition to steering business to its insurance company partners, the producer at times solicited fake bids, which deceived the customers into thinking that true competition had taken place. The producer did this even as it claimed in, in public statements like on its website that its guiding principle was to always consider its client's best interest. The result was, in addition to restitution and large fines, loss of reputation, 
a number of convictions, a change in business practices, close supervision and reporting to the New York Insurance Department with costly independent audits of their business practices. This contingent compensation arrangement based purely on volume had become an industry norm. We concluded that this incentive could act as motivation to make coverage and policy recommendations that were solely in the producer's best interest and without the insured's knowledge. The investigation by the insurance department supported new disclosure regulations as well as an amendment to the PLMA applicable to all producers, not just those involved in an AD complaint. It required the disclosure of all premium quotes and full disclosure to the customer or the commissions compensation to be derived from the insurance purchase. The theory was that this would assist the customer in understanding the motivation behind the insurance purchase recommended by, by their agent or broker and simultaneously allow the customer the ability to know how their interests were being protected. Having pointed that out, the distinction of the term agent and broker there are customs and practices in the insurance business that would dictate that each licensed producer could at times have a dual role in representing both their client and the insurer. Perhaps the agent is allowed to collect a premium on behalf of the company, and the company may give the producer a policy to deliver to the insured. Well, at the same time, the insured may be asking the producer to review the policy to make sure it provides the intended coverage. At times, producers can even present quotes for multiple companies in a particular transaction, some of which the insured will be acting as an agent, or the producer will be acting as an agent, and some where the producer will be acting as, as the broker. But the producer has to be mindful to disclose to the insured the dual roles so that the insured is allowed to make informed decisions for their own benefit. I want to talk, talk about licensing qualifications dovetailing off, the, off this, this, intriguing, uh, this intriguing case. Uh, so what qualifies a person to be licensed as a pr producer in the first place? When I mentioned earlier the reciprocity and licensing spurred the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, I indicated one of the stipulations of securing licenses around the nations was that your home state considers you in good standing. So Let's talk about good standing. The primary elements of licensing are that you be trustworthy and competent. Those two terms are very broad and not defined so in the insurance law so as to be limiting to the, the authority of the superintendents or commissioners of insurance. To prove competency, the state requires you to take pre-licensing education, pass course, pass a state licensing exam, and complete continuing education every two years. The subject matter of the coursework and the testing is about both insurance knowledge and the state laws that regulate insurance. Once you have met the competency requirements, you are entitled to pay a fee and apply for licensure. In that process, the state does their initial vetting of an applicant's trustworthiness. There are a series of questions on the application that ask about applicant's background, such as past criminal history, past administrative actions, such as license revocations, suspensions, or fines. How have you handled money? Uh, do you have any bankruptcies, judgments that are not satisfied, any pending lawsuits, tax liens, 
unpaid child support obligation. Also about 20 or so states have you submit fingerprints and run a state and federal criminal background check. Each application is certified by the applicant and signed under the penalties of perjury. It is particularly important that a felony or crime or breach of fiduciary capacity be disclosed and reviewed by the insurance department. There is a federal statute referred to as 1033 that requires such applicant or existing producer to receive a waiver from the insurance commissioner in order to remain in the business of insurance. This is a separate structured process independent of the application. Should the applicant answer yes to any of these background questions, the state investigates each situation and makes a determination as to whether the circumstances are disqualifying and would result in the denial of a license. But once it's, the application is reviewed and the license is issued, the newly licensed producer is considered in good standing. If a producer is going to act on behalf of an insurance company, and as a result, will sign an agent agreement that allows them to represent that they are, in fact, an agent of that insurer. The insurance company must create an appointment. That is, they register the agent with the insurance department. In a number of states, the producer must be appointed in order to exercise the benefits bestowed by obtaining a license. And, of course, an appointment fee is usually required. Now that you're licensed, how do you maintain that license? As I mentioned earlier, there are continuing education requirements to be met before a producer is allowed to submit an application for renewal. There are also some of the similar background questions contained in the original application to answer and certify in a renewal application. And of course, there is a licensing fee to be paid. As I have repeated, good standing needs to be maintained. There is a minimum code of conduct prescribed in the insurance laws requiring a standard of care that is customer focused or customer first. Producers are generally considered a fiduciary not only by law but also in court precedent. In New York, for example, the statute and regulations especially recognize the producer as a fiduciary when collecting and transmitting insurance premiums owed to either the insurance company or the insured and they have specific accountability requirements. A fiduciary is a person who holds a legal or ethical relationship of trust with its clients. Fiduciary prudently takes care of money or other assets for another person. And a fiduciary obligation exists whenever the relationship with a client involves a special trust, confidence, and reliance on a fiduciary to exercise his discretion or expertise in acting for the client. I would advise that in any transaction, it has to be in the best interest of the client and appropriately addresses the insurance needs and financial objectives of the clients at the time of the transaction. I previously called, recalled my investigation with Attorney General Spitzer. It not only emphasized the fiduciary nature of a producer, but also highlighted the ability of the state to enforce the statutes by conducting investigations into the market conduct of licensed producers as well as those that should be licensed and are not. A producer can lose good standing when a state proves the producer has violated either the letter or the spirit of the law at an administrative hearing presided over by an administrative law judge. Producers would no longer be considered trustworthy or competent for some of the following activities. And trust me, our investigations proved this bad 
this bad behavior actually happens. Uh, the list is not exhaustive, and I'm going to shorten it up a little bit in the interest of time and just highlight a few, few areas. Improperly withholding, misappropriating, or converting any monies or properties received in the course of doing an insurance business. With the exception of earned commissions and some permissible fees, a producer is always holding other people's money and must act in the utmost good faith. Using fraudulent, coercive, or dishonest practices or demonstrating incompetence, untrustworthiness, or financial irresponsibility in the conduct of business, insurance, or otherwise in this state or elsewhere. Knowingly submitting or accepting insurance business from a producer or an insurer who is not licensed. Having admitted or been found to have committed any insurance, unfair trade practice, or fraud. Just an aside, currently states are reviewing producer prohibited practices around rebating, which is the returning of a portion of your commissions to a consumer to discount the premium as an inducement to buy the insurance from the particular producer or providing gifts or other items of significant value. Some exceptions would be advertising items, items for loss mitigation or prevention, and items that are actually specified benefits in the policy. Smoke alarms for, for your house uh, when, when you're producing a homeowner's policy is, is a good example. Maybe even look, Fitbits if, if you're selling health insurance you know, to, to uh, keep your insurance healthy. Lastly, Having an insurance producer license or its equivalent denied, suspended, or revoked in any other state, province, district, or territory. In fact, if the license is in your home state is revoked, most states can automatically revoke without any administrative hearing. That is, the non-resident license you hold is no longer considered in good standing. So in the above list of activities, I mentioned uh, that doing an insurance business with an unlicensed person violates the insurance law. Producer is not allowed to place business with an unlicensed insurer. The law presumes that operating in the best interest of the clients that you are dealing with companies that are also licensed in your state. But what happens when a producer is unable to find a licensed insurance company that is willing to issue a policy of insurance that the insured needs? So I think what, what I'll do is I'll introduce Dan at this point, and Dan can, can talk about that. Well, thank you, Jack, and thank you, Sam. And picking up from where you left off, Jack, I, I think um, some shorthanded advice for the, uh, for the audience is, one, getting licensed is only the first step in the process of uh, becoming a, an insurance broker or, or an agent. Uh, you have to know and learn the duties and obligations that come with the license. And you certainly heard a few of those from Jack. I had a friend of mine a couple of years back who really was not somebody in the business tell me he got a license to sell a certain insurance product. And I was a little surprised at it because I know that he was not uh, really an insurance uh, person. He was going to do this as a sideline. I asked him about his premium trust account. I said, do you open a premium trust account? And his answer was, what is a premium trust account? As Jack alluded to, um, in New York, you're a fiduciary for those funds that you, um, that you hold on behalf of the, uh, the, the premiums that you hold on behalf of the carriers. So um, I would tell you, um, here's a quick one. Bounce a check, lose a license. That's 
probably the quickest way out of our business that, that I've ever seen in terms of uh, disciplining insurance brokers and agents. So why do you need a license? Well, the law says that if you're going to sell, solicit, or negotiate insurance, you need to have a license. Um, you must be licensed in each state where you sell, solicit, or negotiate. Generally, it is illegal for an insurer to pay commission to an un unlicensed producer or agent or broker. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways I can uh, offer you um, as an audience is um, we have a 50-state system, as Jack said. Um, that means 50 different states with 50 different sets of rules and laws. And while I don't want to overwhelm the audience with that, um, there are a lot of crossovers, um, but there are a lot of variances too. So never assume that what is legal and proper in one state means you're good to go in all 50 states. You really need to know um, state by state. Again, when Jack mentioned fiduciary duties, there are some states that say uh, you are a fiduciary in every respect uh, when you're an insurance broker or an agent. That's that's not New York law, but um, it is the law in, in a number of states. Um, so let's talk about basic duties in New York. And I'm going to focus on New York because it's the law that I know best. Um, and again, with the admonition that uh, what I'm saying is New York law, not necessarily the laws of the other states. So the Court of Appeals, highest court in the state of New York, says the basic duty of a New York agent or broker is to acquire the coverage sought by the insured or inform the insured within a reasonable amount of time of your inability to do so. There is no continuing duty to advise the insured, for instance, to buy different coverage uh, other than what the insured initially asked for or to increase the amount of coverage. Um, so that's the general rule. Um, there are uh, some uh, uh, there is an exception, which is called a special duty, which the Court of Appeals recognized, but it's rarely uh, implemented. But um, if an insured pays for additional services, then you may owe a special duty. Um, if an insured makes a request for a particular uh, or specific coverage beyond perhaps what we would consider a, uh, a type of coverage by name, such as homeowners insurance or general liability insurance, that may uh, create a special duty. Um, there's also sometimes a special duty when an insured enjoyed a longstanding relationship and during a course of dealing, such agent or broker would objectively be on notice that the insured was seeking advice and was relying on the broker's exp expertise. Um, let's talk about big picture insurance law. Uh, basically, the insurance law requires that insurers that underwrite risks be licensed in the state where they're underwriting risks and that the product distributors, which are the agents and brokers, must also be licensed. So Jack was asking me to get get uh, into the area of excess and surplus lines insurance and talk about that because it's somewhat different um, than the standard license market. So let me start, you know, talk just briefly about the big public policy. So essentially, every state has recognized that there are risks in their state and insureds and residents of their state that can't always acquire the coverage they're seeking from licensed insurers. It often happens when the risk is distressed, distressed or it's a brand new risk or it's a new type of coverage. These are uh, coverages that the licensed insurers sometimes refuse to write. So, uh, what the states have done in recognizing the need 
to help these residents obtain their insurance is they allow certain unlicensed insurers to underwrite risks. We call them excess and surplus lines insurers. They're not licensed by the state in which they operate. What happens is the law requires a special license of an excess, uh, excess and surplus lines agent or broker. Again, the states vary on whether they call you excess or surplus lines and whether it's a um, uh, an agent uh, duty or a broker duty. In New York, it's a broker duty. So what are the duties, the special duties that are added to the process um, when you have an excess and surplus lines license? Um, the brokers have to make a diligent effort, subject to certain exceptions, to uh, place the business first with a licensed carrier. And when three licensed carriers refuse to write a particular risk, then the excess line broker is permitted to go to eligible but not licensed in that state, excess line insurers. They have to use due care in selecting a financially secure insurance company. One of the reasons for that is there's no guarantee funds in the event of the insolvency of an excess line insurer. They have to file affidavits or other documents, depending on the state, uh, with either the state or in our case with the, what we call stamping offices, which Eleni, the entity I run, is a stamping office. And they also have to pay special taxes, excess line taxes on the risks that they insure. So uh, those are normally collected from the insureds, but they're payable uh, in New York, at least by the excess line broker. Uh, in New York, you have uh, a market, and it's true in most states, big retail brokers often go directly to excess line markets and they'll have the excess line license to do that. But smaller brokers who really don't have uh, necessarily an expertise or access to excess line insurers often go through wholesale excess line brokers. So the retail broker, you know, your main street brokers, your storefront brokers, when they can't find a licensed carrier to write a risk, they'll often go to an, uh, a wholesale broker who will place it for them. Um, I'm going to mention uh, some changes uh, to laws in the last few years. Um, around 1999 or 2000, Graham Leach Bliley, which Jack mentioned, was passed. And up until that point, you had to have a resident office in any state where you are going to have an excess or surplus lines license. There really was no complete or full non-resident licenses. And Graham Leach Bliley changed that. So most brokers now can have a license in any state uh, they want to have an excess or surplus line license in. We also had a bill passed as part of uh, Dodd-Frank called the Non-Admitted and Reinsurance Reform Act. That was a federal law that was designed to try to make uh, state laws more uniform. Uh, probably the biggest section of that law was that the uh, law says that only the home state of the insured can regulate any single excess or surplus lines placement, and that only that home state can tax any single excess or surplus lines risk. So that created some uniformity uh, that our industry long uh, longed for. Um, there was also a bill passed not too long ago called NARAB2, which would help make it easier to obtain non-resident licenses. Uh, NARAB2 was passed and signed into law, but unfortunately, uh, the president has to appoint a board of directors to run NARAB and that process eluded both uh, the uh, Obama administration when the law was passed and now the first, uh, uh, you know, first four years of the Trump administration. Um, so what else can I tell you about? 
one thing I'm going to say is don't go it alone. You know, I, I can tell you that our business is not, you know, you shouldn't despair when you hear all the things that Jack and I have talked about, but don't go it alone. Join associations, phone a friend or phone a regulator. Uh, I always phoned Jack when he was a regulator to help me out with things that I needed to know. Um, but I'll mention that, you know, I was general counsel of an insurance company that was domiciled in Illinois in the earlier part of my career. And I met uh, a director, a deputy director there named Edame Creedy, which that, that name sounds like it's right out of a novel. And Edame was just, she was a wonderful, wonderful lady. She used to call me her boyfriend. And um, I would call her up and, you know, ask for guidance and she would always give it to me. And there were times when I actually asked her and I said, well, the law says this, this is what I should do. Right. And she would say, no, sweetie. And she actually said it with a very gravelly voice. No, sweetie, here's what you do. Just, just fill out this form and get it to me. And I can, and it really seemed like what she wanted me to do wasn't in compliance with the statute. But I recognized at that point, I needed to satisfy her more than I needed to satisfy the letter of the law. So, you know, don't, don't ever forget to, uh, uh, to lean on some friends, join associations, and you'll learn from that experience and, you know, uh, the mentoring experience. Last thing I'm going to tell you, don't be discouraged by what we're saying today. Be encouraged by it because I can tell you, I have a lot of well-to-do friends that were C students in school and they're well-to-do because they've been in the insurance industry for a long time. It's a, it's a great business where you can make, you make a a good living. Um, And with that, I'm going to turn it back to Jack. Jack. Yes. Yes. Dan. Yeah. Thanks. I I knew Edamay that she was a character. I'll tell you. Uh, you made me laugh. Uh, <laughs> um, but I wanted to touch base on one other item that, that we were asked to touch base, and that, that's cybersecurity, cybersecurity regulation. And I, and I just wanted to say that it does apply to producers. Cybersecurity regulations that are being passed, first in New York, now several other states, but will be passed across the country as there's a federal uh, – federal uh, guidance out there that says if the states don't pass cybersecurity regulations across the country, the feds will step up and and pass their own version. All right. So, so far that New York and and the NEIC have passed a fairly uniform bill. There's a few nuances that are different between the two, but if you comply with New York's, uh, the NAIC Model Act says that you comply with the NAIC Model Act. So it made, made it a little more uniform. Now, let me tell you that there's a ton of security requirements. However, there's a there's an exemption. And I want to talk about that exemption for a minute. That exemption is for a captive agent. Now, think of Nationwide or State Farm or an employee of that agency or an employee of an independent insurance agency. Think of the big alphabets like Marsh and Mack and Willis, those those big brokers, you know, totally independent. All right, so if you're an employee of that or employee of, of a captive and you are, that's your sole job, you are fully covered for the protection of your information system and all your non-public information by the cybersecurity program of, of that covered entity. The covered entity is a business entity or individual subject to the jurisdiction of the state and requires usually required a, uh, 
to hold a license. So you, you're employed there, you're under their system, you do not need to develop your own program. I mean, you're, you're, you're okay. Um, however, I'm gonna give you a quick caution. Be mindful that using your own personal devices, think about the Hillary email situation that you keep hearing about. You use your own personal devices like phones, tablets, laptops, and you start conducting your business on your own, you would most likely not be considered fully protected by your employer's cyber security program. And you would probably open yourself up to being subject to the full requirements of the regulations. Okay, so I, I just want to give you that uh, that caveat. And Dan, I was wondering if you wanted to uh, jump in a little bit more. Well, I think with the... Uh... Uh, given our time, I'm going to take a pass because I think you covered it uh, adequately in a short time that we could uh, d- um, dedicate to that. So uh, I think uh, with that, Jack, I am ready to sign off and tell our audience anytime we can help them, you know, please contact uh, me at Eleni Excess Line Association in New York. I'm happy to do whatever I can to help uh, uh, people coming into our industry. Yeah, and, and the same goes for me, Dan. I mean, we, they have our intros. They know where we're, we we uh, work. Uh, you know how to get. You should know how to get in touch with us just from that information. And we're we're glad to help. Okay, Dan and Jack, thank you very much, and uh, for being our panelists today. And this is Sam Garrow, and thanking the uh, the audience for listening. Take care.